I'm reading, first of all, on page 736 in the Pew Bible from Luke chapter 12. And the heading is Warnings and Encouragement. And we're reading up to verse 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you have whispered in the ear at the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves at what you will and or what you will say, but the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Okay, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. Thank you. Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. Hope I can do a bit better. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. <clears throat> they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. 
They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstan. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. May God add his blessing to his word. Well, why don't we pray? <clears throat> Father, thank you so much again for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray that as we look at it now that you give us uh, some fresh insights and some clarity in terms of understanding you and your purposes. And help us, Lord God, to be encouraged to be more uh, faithful to you, putting Jesus first in all things. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. I wonder if there are times when you sometimes feel nervous. What are the things that make you feel nervous? What are the experiences or the situations where you're likely to start to feel the butterflies in your stomach a little bit? Uh, I, I, I sometimes think that a lot of us get nervous about the idea of giving a speech in public. Does, that, does, does the idea of having to stand up in front of public and speak thrill you? No, that can be pretty frightening, can't it? And uh, actually, sometimes I'm glad we've got this sort of lectern that you can't see through because you can't see my knees sort of 
wobbling uh, as, we, uh, as I speak. Um, what about if you're going for a job interview? You're waiting to walk into that room and you can feel your nerves, the heart starts to pump just a little bit faster. Or um, into an examination room. Uh, the uh, school students here have sometimes experienced experience waiting for that first HSC exam, the uh, English paper number one, and wondering, have I done enough study? What's about to happen to me when I walk through this door? I still remember the way I felt when I was waiting to do my driver's licence test the first time. Uh, and it's, a, it's a bit, you know, you know how it feels, don't you? It's, it can be, you get nervous doing that. Um, when are the times when you felt nervous? I remember I used to work as an accountant in a large chemical factory and one of my desires when I was there was to, uh, to share about Jesus with my non-Christian workmates. And it was something which I prayed about and <clears throat> looked for that opportunity. And then the opportunity came. I was sitting in the cafeteria at lunchtime one day and the, um, with a few other guys and strangely the conversation turned to the topic of God and I, I nearly fell off my chair because I didn't raise the subject and then worse than that I found that the other guys were looking at me and they said to me so Scott what do you think about God and I dropped the ball well almost I, I, I went to jelly uh, now I'm sure that what I said was true and that God could potentially use what I said uh, for their benefit but I was nervous. I was really nervous. What about you? Does speaking to non-Christians about Jesus, does the thought of that sometimes make you feel uh, a bit nervous, a bit shy to do that? If that's not you, then praise the Lord. That's great. That's tremendous. Uh, if it is you, then I would just want to say join the club. And I guess we feel nervous because we, we wonder how our friends are going to react. We, we're not sure if they're going to react in a positive way or whether what we're about to say is going to start them getting angry. Now, Jesus, of course, made people angry uh, when he spoke the truth. We saw that last week in Luke chapter 11, didn't we? Um, Jesus wasn't speaking to a bunch of non-Christian accountants sitting around the lunch table. He was dealing with religious leaders, uh, teachers of the law and Pharisees, who were, uh, although religious, although religious leaders, they were trusting in themselves. Uh, they were loving themselves more than they were loving God. And Jesus, by his words, was exposing that. And by the end of the conversation, Luke tells us that they were now opposing Jesus fiercely. Now, uh, this is important because Jesus knew that it was that kind of opposition, fierce opposition, which his disciples would experience later on when it was their time to be preaching uh, the truths about God. And so in our passage today, which uh, Jackie read for us, thank you, Jackie, um, <clears throat> I... Um, appreciate what you're saying about having the large print sometimes. So I've got a, 
I've got multiple pairs of glasses for multiple tasks. But uh, in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, uh, we see that Jesus warns his disciples to be on guard, doesn't he? If you have a look at it, he warns his disciples to be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, as you probably know, I've never made bread in my life, but even, even I know what yeast is. That yeast is it's a fungus, it's a good fungus, and a little bit of yeast in the, in the dough uh, starts to, to grow and spread and multiply, and it spreads throughout the whole batch of dough, which is a good thing because it's what causes the bread to rise when you stick it in the oven. It's a good thing. But uh, Jesus here is concerned about a different type of yeast. Uh, We see here in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, that there is now a large crowd which has been drawn to Jesus. Uh, Luke tells us that it was a a very large crowd, that it was uh, thousands of people. In fact, actually the original word there is myriads, and a, a myriad was equivalent to 10,000 people. And so we're told there that uh, there was a crowd of many thousands that that had gathered. In fact, it was so big that there were some problems with people actually starting to trample one another. But that was not primarily the concern that Jesus had, although I'm sure he was concerned about that. The concern that Jesus had was that here you have this huge crowd and they're people who've been drawn to Jesus. They, they want to listen to Jesus. They want to, they want to hear what he's on about. But Jesus knows that amongst them, there are some people who are his enemies, who, like yeast, will spread their hypocritical opposition to Jesus throughout the crowd. Now, it's really important for the disciples to to grapple with this because the things which they have been learning from Jesus uh, in private, they themselves will soon be proclaiming those things to crowds of people. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. Let me read those verses. Verse 2. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Now, at first glance, it may appear that this is referring to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees being exposed Uh, and made public, but I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying here. It seems to me that uh, uh, that it's, if we we have a look at it, there's a similar passage in Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, where Jesus says, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight, what is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. It's very similar terminology. And so putting it together, it seems that this is really about the private conversations that have gone on between Jesus and his disciples. And uh, it's this private teaching which would soon become the content 
of the apostolic preaching. It will become the message that they will proclaim to large crowds. It won't be secret any longer. It will be disclosed. It will be disclosed through, through their lips to large crowds of people. So that's what I think Jesus is saying here. Now, this, of course, happens after the Holy Spirit is sent, uh, where we see that because of the Holy Spirit, these the timid uh, disciples are transformed and they become very bold preachers of the gospel of Christ, preachers of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we see this throughout the book of Acts, where the preaching of the apostles and the other believers uh, was often met with fierce opposition. Um, it usually started with the religious leaders and, like yeast, spread to the crowds. For example, in Thessalonica, when Paul went there and he preached in the synagogues, it was the religious leaders, the Jewish authorities, who then... Uh, spread dissent uh, amongst the crowds so that there was a rejection of uh, Paul uh, and his companions. Uh, before that, we see it in Acts chapter 7 after C Stephen's speech, uh, when Stephen spoke the truth uh, to religious leaders and we're told that a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem as a result of that. Uh, which, by the way, inspired a young Pharisee named Saul to embark on what was a murderous campaign against the followers of Jesus. Now, it's important to, uh, to, to feel the gravity of that, that uh, uh, that was a murderous campaign, that the kind of opposition that the apostles would experience uh, was violent and it uh, was life-threatening. Uh, it took the life of Stephen, who was not an apostle, but one of the other believers. So this is not the type of reaction that we might expect and might make us nervous in talking to our non-Christian friends. Uh, it is much worse. Uh, it is terrifying, in fact. And for many Christians in our world today, this is not academic. This is reality of life. Uh, the Christian organisation, for example, Open Doors, uh, tells us that uh, they estimate that 180 Christians in the world are killed every month uh, because of their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the US Department of State tells us that uh, in 60 countries in the world that Christians are officially persecuted by their governments or the governments of the surrounding countries when the borders are not so clearly defined. Um, Christians in North Korea are regularly sentenced to labour camps, are tortured and are executed because of their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they share the gospel, they are accused of sedition because they're promoting another king another kingdom, they're accused of undermining the state and go to labour camps and tortured and are executed. So the point is that 
This is not academic. But neither is it new, because is it not the very same thing which happened to the Lord Jesus Christ as the religious leaders poisoned the crowds, the once adoring crowds, so that their motto became crucify him. And that's the yeast of the Pharisees at work. And this is what the disciples must expect, that gospel preaching arouses opposition because what is going on in the preaching of the gospel is that two kingdoms are clashing. The kingdom of God is interfacing with the kingdom of the evil one and the evil one's not particularly happy about that because he knows that his doom is writ. And so when this happens, how should the, the, the apostles, the, how should they respond? Well, Jesus has a number of things to say here and uh, it's helpful to reflect on our world at the moment because our world tells us that, uh, that our life uh, consists in nothing more than what we experience in the here and the now. Uh, in this body, this, these bones, this flesh. And uh, if you're an Australian, the average lifespan is 82 years. Um, some of us have got a way to go, but this, that's the average. And after that, they say, that's it. It's all over. There's nothing more. Now, if there is nothing more to existence after death, then death really is the ultimate penalty. Death robs a person of everything. In a sense, it is the maximum punishment. But in verses 4 through to 7, Jesus lifts the horizon of our thinking and he reminds his disciples, and by implication us, of, of two things. First of all, he reminds us that our existence is an eternal existence that it goes on forever. And since that is the case, death is not the maximum punishment. Uh, let's have a look at that, verse 4. In verse 4 he says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? Uh, you know, in the New Testament, there are two words which are translated as hell. Uh, one is the word Hades. The other is the word Gehenna. And uh, the word Gehenna is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew, uh, which is uh, Gehimon. And Gehimon uh, means, uh, uh, refers to a valley, the, the valley of Himon. It's a valley that was just outside of Jerusalem and it's a place which was considered to be unclean by the Jews. It was a repulsive place for Jews and a key reason for that was that uh, in the Old Testament uh, there were two kings of Judah who used that place as a place for pagan worship, which involved child sacrifice. They sacrificed the lives 
of their own boys, their sons, in this place. And so uh, Gehimon or Gehenna uh, was not viewed in a particularly good way as a, as a piece of real estate. In fact, in the time of Jesus, it was considered to be worth uh, nothing more than to use it as a rubbish tip. And that's what it was. It was a rubbish tip and it, it was a rubbish tip which had continual smouldering fire as it burnt away the rubbish. And so it's an apt uh, description or an apt metaphor for Jesus to say, well, this is actually what hell is like. This is the place where you don't want to go. You don't want to be going to Gehenna for eternity. And that's what he's saying here. Now, we should be fearful of that. Uh, I once did, I remember I once did some Bible studies with a, a young man whose name was Mark. Mark was an interesting character. He was, uh, he was coming out of heroin addiction and he was on methadone when he met me. And a couple of his friends uh, who were, had become a part of the church I was pastoring, they were also ex-drug addicts and uh, they connected very well with Mark and uh, they wanted to share with him the gospel. Now, if, <clears throat> if you or I were going to give a, a book for someone to read who's not a Christian, which might actually help them to think about Christian things, I don't know that the book we would choose would be the one which is titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a printed sermon by an 18th century American preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards. In fact, people, people in our age tend to hand people a tract called God Loves You and has got a wonderful plan for your life. But Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And uh, by the time Mark came to me, he was, he was in fear and trembling. He said, I've just read about, about this God who, who is holy. I'm pretty well aware of my sin. I don't want to go to hell. What can you do to help me? <laughs> I said, well, Mark, you've come to the right place. <laughs> and he came to understand about the Lord Jesus Christ and how Jesus had died for him and he turned his life over to Christ. There was a rocky road after that. I've not usually gone to congregation members to visit them in prison cells, but, you know, it was a, it was a time when Mark had to really wrestle with a change of lifestyle, but he came to understand salvation through having this right fear of God. Now... Uh, this is not like the terror that we might experience because of the evil of a very wicked person. Uh, the, the right fear of God is a reverence. It's a reverence which says that there is a God who is holy and he deserves for me to worship him and I've fallen short of that and I justly deserve his his punishment. This is to actually have a right fear of God, a fear that leads to falling at our knees and seeking forgiveness from him. 
and because he's also a merciful God, finding that forgiveness. And so Jesus is saying, don't fear the one who the worst they can do for you is kill you. Fear the one, have this eternal perspective and fear the one who after death can actually throw you into hell. And it's interesting when we look at Stephen's, uh, the, the martyrdom of Stephen, that uh, when Stephen uh, spoke God's word and he was stoned to death, that just before he dies, he looks up to the heavens and, and he says, receive my soul and be merciful to these people who are stoning me to death. Stephen didn't see that his death was his end. Stephen saw that he was going into his eternal future, and rightly so. So we need to have that mindset. Secondly, Jesus reminds us that no matter what persecution we might suffer at the hands of men, that God values us. Uh, in the marketplace, to um, two copper coins, uh, uh, it's translated there as two pennies, but the two asaria, and the as was the, was the lowest unit of currency uh, in Roman currency, uh, two asaria could buy five sparrows. That's a good deal, isn't it? Right? In fact, uh, there's another, this is a better deal than what it seems, because there's another passage that says that one one as buys you two sparrows. So if two sparrows, two as area buys you five sparrows, they've thrown a sparrow in for free. <laughs> right? Now, so dime a dozen, that's what Jesus is saying. Sparrows are dime a dozen in the, I don't eat them, I suppose, but, um, and yet God remembers every sparrow. God, any sparrow that falls from the ground, God knows about that. That's how involved he is in our world and guess what uh, you're more valuable than a sparrow um, god cares so much in fact that he knows things about us that we don't know ourselves i i would not have the foggiest idea how many hairs there are on my head uh, but god knows precisely how many hairs there are on my head and on your head that is how much god knows us he knows us and Jesus says, therefore, do not be afraid. God knows you, and you are worth more than many, many sparrows. I once met a man who spent 10 years in a re-education camp, uh, which he'd been sentenced to because he uh, preached about the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I asked him, how did you, you survive a decade? in prison for the sake of Christ. And the summary of his response was that he wasn't alone in prison. Uh, God was there with him. God did not forget him. And so as we understand that, we have the capacity to deal with any persecution that may come our way, as hard as it might be. Eternity is real. We are valuable to God, and so be bold. Uh, we can confidently speak to people about Jesus, no matter how they might respond to us. 
Now this week, of course, is Easter, and it's the time of the year when uh, you'll see in coming days that the media invite church and denominational leaders to, uh, to have the microphone, uh, to be on camera, uh, to have their stuff printed in the newspapers, and to tell us all, to tell our community uh, about the, the meaning of Easter. And it's great, isn't it? It's fantastic. It's tremendous when we see our church leaders on TV uh, speaking clearly about the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the need to turn to him. That's great because you know why? People actually get converted hearing that. And it's also good because it emboldens us, doesn't it? So that we too can be bold in speaking to our friends when we see our leaders doing that publicly. What's not great is when they avoid these things. What's not great is when they seem to be embarrassed about these things or they don't want to cop the criticism that comes from saying these things and so they find some other meaning of Easter to tell the Australian community about. I've even heard church leaders in the media at Easter saying that well, you know what? The majority of scholars don't actually believe that uh, what the Bible says about the resurrection of Jesus means a physical resurrection. We tend to believe these days that he's resurrected because he's, his memory and his example lives on in our hearts. Have a look at verse 8. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me, acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. That's solemn, isn't it? It's a solemn warning of judgment. It's also a solemn encouragement uh, that we would be acknowledged before the angels if we dare to speak the truth before men about Jesus. Now Jesus goes on uh, in verse 10 to say something. Look at this. He says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now there's a curly one, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you look at that and you think, what's he actually saying there? Uh, why would Jesus say that it's, that it's okay to speak against him? Someone who speaks against the Son of Man, well, they, they can be forgiven. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, then that's the end of the story. Uh, there's no hope for you. What does that mean? Why, why would he say that? Uh, there, are, there are different views on this. And uh, I th I, I'll tell you my view. Uh, I think it's important to remember the context here. Jesus has not yet died and risen. The disciples do not yet have the Holy Spirit. And so there are failings even amongst the the, the disciples amongst the, the apostles. Uh, 
the Apostle Peter, he spoke a word against Jesus, didn't he? Um, he was afraid. He was afraid uh, to acknowledge that he even knew Jesus, uh, even to someone as insignificant as a young, as a young, as a young servant girl. Three times he denied that he knew Jesus and yet was he forgiven? He was, wasn't he? He was later forgiven. As Jesus says here that someone can speak against the Son of Man and can be forgiven. That is different to the religious leaders who in Luke chapter 11, passage we looked at uh, only recently, they had witnessed Jesus. Do you remember this? They witnessed Jesus drive out a demon from a man who was mute. Remember that? They, when Jesus drove out demons, when Jesus did miracles, he did so because the Holy Spirit was with him. And there they saw what he had done. They saw a man who was released from demonic possession, they saw the victory of God's kingdom over the kingdom of the evil one. They saw a demon being driven out by the power of the Holy Spirit and yet they said that what was the work of the Holy Spirit? They said, nah, he's doing this by the power of Beelzebub. He's doing this by the prince of demons. And friends, that is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And by so blaspheming the Spirit, what they've done in that is that they have, they have rejected the powerful and saving work of God which was done for this man through Jesus. It is, it's a, a wholesale rejection of who Jesus is. It's saying that Jesus is not from God. It's saying that uh, he's not God the Son who has God the Spirit, who's come from God the Father. It is a wholesale rejection of who Jesus is and that's unforgivable because the only way that anyone can be forgiven is to, is to acknowledge and to trust in the powerful saving work of God through Jesus which is applied to our lives by his Holy Spirit. Uh, in Mark chapter 3 verse 30 we're told that uh, when Jesus said this that uh, it's unforgivable to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit Mark explains that he said this because people were saying that Jesus has an evil spirit. So rejecting the Holy Spirit is rejecting Jesus. Rejecting Jesus is rejecting God. It is a wholesale rejection. And you can't be saved. The very basis of forgiveness is that you acknowledge God's saving work through Jesus. And I guess we can imagine Peter looking back on this later on and being encouraged by God's mercy that his speaking a word against Jesus was out of fear in a particular moment and without the Holy Spirit in his life. And that's actually not the same as these religious leaders 
who had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, who had seen the work of the Spirit and called it the work of the devil. Instead, actually, Peter came to know the wonderful empowerment of God's Holy Spirit, which is what Jesus promises right here in verse 11. Have a look at this. He goes on to say, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Now, uh, we mustn't take this out of context. This is not about, you know, you don't have to prepare if you're going to give a sermon or if you're going to lead a Bible study group that you don't have to prepare. You just, just let go and let God and, and it'll all work out. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. Actually, I heard a, it was a preacher who used to say, I don't prepare my sermons. I, I prepare half my sermons and the other half I just let the Holy Spirit uh, speak through me. A lady in the congregation came up to him one day and said, you know how you prepare half of your sermons, the other half, you just let the Holy Spirit... She said, we actually prefer the, spirits, the, the sermons that you prepare, not the sermons of the Spirit. This is not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about the context of persecution, the context where you're dragged up before authorities and you're likely to go wobbly at the knees out of fear and you don't know what to say our fears even for us perhaps losing our nerve there's no need in Acts chapter 4 which we read earlier Peter and John were on trial before the Sanhedrin and that is the elders the rulers the teachers of the law this is the ruling body Uh, Peter, in that context, boldly proclaimed the death and the resurrection of Jesus and told these guys to their face that salvation is found in no other name, that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. This is Peter, who had denied even you, Jesus, to a servant girl. And then the Sanhedrin commanded that uh, Peter and John should stop telling people about Jesus. And their response was along the lines of, we're going to obey God rather than obey you. Because guess what? We cannot stop. We cannot help ourselves from talking about and proclaiming the things which we have seen and the things which we have heard. It's remarkable, isn't it? Luke, in that passage in in Acts 4, uh, tells us that it was because the Holy Spirit gave him those words, which is exactly what Jesus promised here in Luke chapter 12. So there you go. How about you? Does telling people about Jesus make you feel nervous? Sometimes we can feel we might be in an opportunity. Uh, there's an opportunity before us to talk about Jesus. But we, can, we feel outside our comfort zone. And we can even say to ourselves, you know what? It's not really my gift. I might just 
leave it up to the more gifted Christians to talk to my friend, my workmate or my family member about Jesus. You know what the problem with that is? Those other Christians probably don't know your friend. (laughs) And uh, who is it that God has given the relationship to? It's you. Uh, And so don't be fearful. Uh, Jesus wants us to think eternally. He wants us to know the value that God places on us, irrespective of the outcome. And he wants us to trust that by his spirit, he will give us the words. They may not be the words of an articulate preacher. They may not be the words of the world's most gifted evangelist. But you know whose words they'll be? They'll be your words, given to you by God's Spirit to share with your friend. And God's got this incredible knack of actually taking ordinary people, people like us, to change lives. So be confident and be trusting in him. How about we pray? Father, we want to thank you again for your love for us, your care for us, the way that you know us so well. We thank you, Father God, that we need not fear eternal damnation as we put our trust in Christ. But as we remember that, help us to not fear men. Help us to be bold in sharing with people about Jesus, not to be embarrassed or to be too shy uh, or in any way to be ashamed. Help us to be bold. Help us to be confident and grant us opportunities, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.